from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. Welcome to U.S. Farm Report this Mother's Day weekend. I'm Tyne Morgan, and here's what's in store over the next 60 minutes. Planting is off to its slowest start in nearly a decade. I'm not saying this is going to be a bad crop, but a lot of things have got to go right, and we've kind of taken a record yield off the table. We'll tell you what impact it could have on final yields. As a ranch family in North Dakota gets real about what it's like to battle historic blizzards at the height of calving season. It's like gratefulness and fear all sort of balled into one because we haven't seen snow like this for years. Blessings in the form of moisture as the beaters weathered the storm. And in John's world. Cold enough for you. Well, now for the news. Planting progress right now is moving at its slowest pace in nine years. USDA is saying in the latest crop progress report that only 14% of the corn crop is in the ground. That's 19 percentage points off the five-year average. But take a look at this map created by Farm Journal. It shows where things are running behind right now. Those areas highlighted in red. Illinois running the furthest behind with just 7% of the crop in the ground. That's 36 percentage points behind average. Iowa only 9% planted, and that's a 33 percentage point decline from the five-year average. Now, Minnesota with nothing in the ground for corn, that is 28 points behind. The issue, weeks of wet and cold weather. That has painted this wet picture across most of the nation's major crop production areas, and that is the main reason for the delays. And checking on the soybeans, it's much of the same story. USDA reporting 8% of the crop has been planted so far. The five-year average is actually 13%. Illinois, Iowa, and Indiana are all considerably behind. But relief could be on the way for the Midwest next week. Meteorologist Matt Urasavik will have a check of that weather coming up. Well, India now says it's not moving to curb wheat exports. That announcement coming after Bloomberg report earlier this week had said it was considering restrictions after a heat wave had considerably damaged the wheat crop there. India is the world's second biggest producer of wheat. The news sending wheat up double digits again, where at home, out of concern, it would exacerbate already tight supplies due to the war in Ukraine. Now, India Food and Farm Ministry officials saying the country can still easily export at least 8 million tons of wheat this year. It said the government would only consider curbing exports if there's a sudden and unexpected surge in overseas shipments. But the country's food secretary told Reuters, quote, there is no move to curb wheat exports as the country has sufficient stocks of wheat, end quote. India has cut its wheat output forecast to 105 million tons. That's down from a February estimate of just over 111 million tons. Well, tariff talk is back on the table again. U.S. tariff relief for China is apparently now under consideration. U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai talking about it during an interview at the Milken Institute Global Conference in Los Angeles. Last week, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen also proposed the phasing out of Trump-era tariffs on merchandise imports from China to provide price relief to Americans. You know, tariffs are tariffs are the traditional trade tool. Um, you know, uh, they're a revenue raiser. They're a traditional way of regulating trade, right? So, sure, we can look at those tariffs, right? Um, but I'm I'm giving you the lens, the strategic lens through which we need to be looking at. I appreciate the lens. You're not okay. answering the question. Are they on the table or not? Are they on the table or not? All tools are on the table. Okay. okay. The question is, what do you do with them? 
Well, ag producers across the country are feeling a little better about the state of the overall farm economy, but inflation has them worried. So does sourcing inputs. That's according to the Purdue CME Group Ag Economy Barometer. The latest survey is showing a slight increase in April, up eight points to a reading of 121. That's up slightly month over month, but well below last year's reading at this time of 178. Surveyors say the April increase can be attributed to an improvement in farmers' outlooks on current situation as well as what they expect in the future. So producers are starting to feel somewhat better about their farm's financial situation in 2022 compared to 2021. The Farm Capital Investment Index, however, did not improve. It stayed at 36. That's the lowest reading we've ever had on the Farm Capital Investment Index. And over 40% of the producers in this month's survey continue to say that purchase plans are being impacted by low farm machinery inventory levels. This month, 11% of the producers in the survey said that they had received notice from an input supplier that the supplier would be unable to deliver inputs they had already purchased for use in the 2022 crop season. Mintert says farmers were clear the top concern for 2023 are higher input costs, followed by the availability of inputs. When asked about 2023, more than a third of farmers in the survey say they do expect input prices to rise 10% or more on top of 2022's already elevated prices. And the Federal Reserve raised its key interest rate by a half a percentage point this week, part of an ongoing effort to tamp down the worst inflation in 40 years. Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell this week downplaying the likelihood of bigger interest rate hikes following the U.S. Central Bank's biggest increase in two decades. That means higher interest costs for mortgages, home equity lines of credit, credit cards, as well as other loans for things like farmland. Economists say the rate increase could cause long-distance issues. All right, that's it for the news. Well, a cold and rainy week meant another week of little planting progress, but the forecasts, they do show brighter days are ahead. We'll have a check of your planting forecasts next. Meteorologist Matt Urasavik joining us this Mother's Day weekend. Matt, it sounds like we are skipping spring-like weather this year altogether. Mother Nature's bringing the heat next week. Yeah, Tyne, we're going to see a lot of warmth through the east as we're heading through this week. But I wanted to show you this drought monitor to start things off. Still looking at extreme to exceptional drought conditions. Most of Texas back into western Oklahoma and most of New Mexico. Keeping around the drought conditions here in the west, but a little bit of improvement there in the northern plains. Parts of uh, both of the Dakotas, south and north, seeing some improvements there, as well as parts of Nebraska and Iowa up into Wisconsin as well. As we look towards the east, still abnormally dry conditions and most of the east looking very dry as we head through the next week or week and a half. And that means that some of these abnormally dry conditions could expand or get a little bit worse as we head through the next couple of weeks. And this is why because we've got a ridge building in as we head towards Monday and watch what happens. It gets even warmer, warm and humid air all the way up into parts of Canada, all the way up into the Great Lakes and very hot and humid out ahead of a dry line back here in parts of Texas, Oklahoma and Kansas. You've got kind of a cutoff low here, which could bring a little bit of shower and maybe a little bit of some of that moisture into the southeast by the end of the week. But keeping that ridge in place means very warm and humid air out ahead of a nice trough in the west, which could keep things pretty unsettled back there in the west, even as we head into the upcoming weekend.
So here's a look at Monday. We've got uh, warm conditions out ahead of that warm front, mostly dry. A little bit of shower activity off towards the east coast is possible. A couple of thunderstorms down in Florida. Hot and humid though between that warm front and that dry line. Meanwhile, back towards the Four Corners region, we stay warm and we stay dry. It's not until we get up here to the north where we're dealing with the shower and even some higher elevation snow chances as well. Then on Wednesday, not a lot going on. Storm system continuing through the middle part of the country here. Couple of showers up into the uh, northern plains and uh, up into the Great Lakes, back into the Pacific Northwest as well. Meanwhile, it's going to be hot and humid in the east. A few shower chances as the storm system rolls off the east coast, but other than that, not too bad. Now it gets more active by Friday. Storm system in the east bringing showers and thunderstorms. Another storm system coming up from Mexico bringing some showers. Warm and humid out ahead of that. And then more showers back in the northern Rockies and Pacific Northwest stays mild, but on the cooler side in the northern plains there as well. And if we look at the temperatures as we head through this week, much above average right here through the eastern half of the country while staying below average back in the west and precipitation kind of the opposite above average back in the west below average right where it's going to be warm and humid and a little bit of shower activity in the south and east time back to you. Thanks, Matt. With the recent Biden administration announcements about possible efforts to avoid food shortages worldwide, we're talking markets and policy in our roundtables this week. Dan Bossi and Jim Wiesmeyer join me next. Here now with Dan Bossi as well as Jim Wiesmeyer. As I mentioned before the break, with so many policy happenings right now, we wanted to marry the markets and the policy discussion this week. So Jim Wiesmeyer as well as Dan Bossi here to do that. Dan, let's start off, though, with the slow planting pace, slowest start to planting in nine years. We are seeing some good weather, some good forecasts this coming week. Do you think we can make enough progress, though, to catch up historically? No, Tyne, we're not going to be able to catch up historically. I'd like to say we will. This week, we're kind of estimating U.S. corn seedings will be about 20 to 22 percent completed because of all the rain that we've had. So the record low as of May 8th, this will be the report that comes out on Monday, is 17 percent. So catching up, we'll get a little above that, but it's going to be a late seeded year no matter how we look at it. And there is a yield drag after we plant corn after, let's say, May or 10th or 15th, depending upon the agronomist. And so with that, I'm not saying this is going to be a bad crop, but a lot of things have got to go right. And we've kind of taken a record yield off the table. Notice that USDA is still using in their WASDI a 181 corn yield, which is four bushels an acre above last year's record. We'll see if that all bears out. Well, there's a lot of focus on what production is going to end up being here in the U.S. And some saying, you know, we can't afford any hiccups. And if we do, though, you know, what type of action will the White House or this administration take at this point when it comes to some of the issues with grain? So, Jim, right now, as you see other countries making export ban announcements and mulling some of those some of those decisions, do you think anything like that is on the table here in the U.S. at this point? No, not at this particular time, but they're not only worried about uh, the current year's crop, but they're really concerned about the 2023 crop relative to inputs, uh, you know, seeded acreage, uh, et cetera. But I will tell you, Tyne, after watching this town for uh, just right around 50 years, uh, when you talk food price run up to what we have plus inflation, uh, I don't care whether it's a Republican or Democrat administration in the White House, they can do some stupid things because they have done it in the past. So what do you think it's going to take to prompt that type of action? Are we going to have to see a, a significant yield drag or something else? 
I think what Dan just said, if you get much below trend line yields for the important crops of corn and soybeans, uh, th that pressure mounts almost every, not day, every hour at the White House to do something about it. And, and even though the World Bank and IMF and G7 and all that are imploring exporting countries uh, not to limit their production on the export side, we've already seen a number of countries do that. It's called self-preservation. Well, and speaking of that, just this week, when it comes to wheat in India, talk that because of, of, of crop damage potentially there because of weather, that they were considering an export ban there or curbing exports, at least when it comes to wheat. So, Dan, is the crop there really that bad? It really is, Ty. And as we're looking at yield data from India and we're looking at receivables, which is what the government gets from the farmer, now, we've collected about 14.7 million metric tons of wheat in India. Normally, they would at this time, we'd be over 30 million, maybe as much as 32 million. For the season, they're hoping to collect about 44 million metric tons. So as you look at India, the crop is down, there's shriveled kernels. Uh, the government's probably going to have to react, we believe, before June 1st with some kind of export restrictions. How they do it is going to be very key. But, you know, we were all thinking that India was going to be that bridge of uh, supply that would help us from the Black Sea. If we lose the Indian export capabilities and they become a net importer, which if the crop is under 100 is very likely, that'll be the same as the equivalent of maybe uh, losing the Argentinian wheat export availability of 14 and a half million metric tons just last year. It's a big deal. Well, Dan, I mean, you know, we look at some of the announcements last week and trying to incentivize grain production and possibly oilseed production here in the U.S., hearing some other countries that are trying to do the same and really ramp up grain production. But where could those additional bushels come from at this point when there's so much uncertainty about Russia and Ukraine? Well, it, it, it probably has to come from South America. We have this thesis in our office, and I know USDA is talking about it also called peak U.S. farmland where there's just not a lot of additionality in terms of U.S. productive acres unless they release CRP. And I hope that would be their first measure before they got to export bans. But that being said, you know, uh, we are going to be tight. And so when you think about the Black Sea, we need to find about 20 or 25 additional 8 million acres from South America over the next two to three years if we're going to balance out world supply and demand. Well, USDA making that, you know, encouraging Congress to pass that bill that would actually incentivize producers here to double crop when it comes to wheat. But what does all that mean? Jim made a lot of phone calls, talked to a lot of folks last week. So we will talk about that coming up on U.S. Farm Report. Well, as we talked about in news and in weather, it hasn't felt or looked like spring for many of our viewers recently. The slow start to the planting season is creating a lot of angst and mind games among farmers. Here's John Phipps. This planting season has been no sweat for us, literally. We haven't done much sweating. It's been the usual hard work, of course, but thanks to abnormally cool temperatures, I'm not giving up my stylish flannel shirts and vintage sweatshirts just yet. Now, it doesn't help to see those reports and hear from viewers in the northern plains with their blizzards either. For those of us whose metabolisms have already eased into retirement, being warm is a high priority and serious business, regardless of what the thermometer says. We also get to battle constant winds this year with hours around 20 to 25 mile an hour. Meanwhile, we're trying to do all the things we normally do this time of year without any pleasant weather. I've mowed our lawn twice in a winter coat. The grass loves it, though, especially the cold rain. 
Jan says it adds weeks onto the lifetime of spring blooms. Yippee. I'm not just griping. I'm leading into an explanation of how such weather can mess with our brains. Because I've spent this spring waiting for good weather to really start, it is harder for me to remember other farmers are dealing with outright blizzards, droughts, heats, and some even have great weather. The U.S. is a big country and our backyards are very small, but our brains evolved to concentrate on what is close at hand. After all, close things are more likely to kill you than far away things. It's called the availability bias, and it is a constant influence on our view of how things are going. Even more so, it has a powerful sway over our predictions. Despite the flood of information available to guide our decisions, what we experience right now, right here, can override it all when we try to plan. Unless we concentrate, we are biased to believe things are going to stay like they are right now and that everybody else is experiencing the same conditions we are. Our market experts work to help us balance this bias, but it's an ongoing struggle. The availability bias has shown up in some of the questions and comments I've received. It constitutes the largest source of disagreement with those crop acres numbers in the government reports, for example. I know other farmers are dealing with other weather, but it's just hard to picture. Oh, somewhere in this favored land, the sun is shining bright, the band is playing somewhere, and somewhere hearts are light, and somewhere men are laughing, and somewhere children shout. Maybe I've just moved to Mudville this spring. Thanks, John. And to hear more of John's commentary, just use the QR code on your screen and it will take you straight to John's World Playlist on YouTube. Well, when we come back, Machinery Pete, he has tractor tails this week. Stay with us. It's time to sign up for the 2022 United Pork Americas Conference in Orlando, Florida. Register today at unitedporkamericas.com and join us September 7th through the 9th. Find farm equipment on Machinery Pete's May 17th online auction. No reserve, no buyer fees. Start bidding now at auctions.machinerypeat.com. We used to uh, farm with uh, the A and before we got the larger tractors and uh, I was able to find this A and good condition, so I bought it. Didn't have to do much restoring to it. It was uh, pretty well what you see. Really liked it, just one of my favorite in the collection. We just started looking and uh, we saw this advertised at a sale at Taylorville, Illinois, and we went to it and bought it. Did a little restoring to it and, and uh, it runs perfect. And we've had it in the Paint of Labor Day Parade several times, pulling floats. and and we put a, a parade seat on it so two people could ride on it. When my son got married, we used it to pull a rack wagon that had the wedding party in it. We pulled it around Pena, so it was kind of unique uh, back then. We probably spent a um, couple months in the wintertime getting it all restored. And Motor-wise, it was perfect, but it was just the metal on the outside, and we had to sand some of the rough part, repaint it, 
the rubber was fine on it when we got it, so we didn't have to do anything that way, but we had to repaint the, the wheels. I guess uh, mainly I collect them uh, to pass them on to our son and, and uh, grandsons. Thanks, Greg. Still to come, blizzards in North Dakota created brutal conditions for ranchers at the height of calving season. And for one ranch family, the weather brought losses and relief. We head to North Dakota for Grit with Grace next. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition. Grit with Grace is brought to you by Zoetis. Your dedication runs deep and it fuels everything Zoetis does. To protect and support cattle and those who care for them, we are born of the bond. Learn more at bornofthebond.com. Well, the weather has been absolutely brutal for ranchers and farmers in North Dakota lately. Back-to-back -back blizzards brought a battle along with relief as the moisture cured an area plagued with drought. This Mother's Day weekend, we take you to western North Dakota to meet a family who's weathered the storm together with grit and grace. Once you get this far west in North Dakota, well, calf out there older than two weeks old. The rugged ways of ranching on the cusp of the Badlands can be challenging. But most of them have been in the last six to seven days. And this year, calving in the middle of a blizzard came with a battle that was unlike anything many North Dakota ranchers had ever seen. We were told it was coming. I guess the magnitude of it just kind of was, it was a slap in the face. Peter Ranch is a family operation that's relied on this land for more than a century. Having that long, one blizzard, a couple days, and another one, I don't, I don't remember that ever happening. Gene Veter grew up here and now ranches with his son-in-law, who's married to his daughter, Jessie. Her husband, Chad, has worked on the ranch for several years, but has only been back full-time for a few years. And now that their family is here, Jesse's grateful. So every day we come to the work that we're doing in the, uh, the family that we have here from a place of gratitude. Even when Mother Nature pushes your livelihood to the limits as the week leading into Easter brought a blizzard of a lifetime. I think lasted three full days and it was bad. Like right, right now where we're standing, we would have been standing in about three feet of snow. As snow piled up, was so deep coming across this road that I was pushing it with the front of the tractor, not even the bucket, just the actual front of the tractor was pushing it. Where we're standing right now, I had snow to my waist. And then just days later, another storm hit, just as the beaters were at the height of calving. That was hard for us. To We knew they were going to have calves out there. We did the best we could to, to give them shelter and get bedding down for them. Already exhausted from the last storm, the Veters did everything they could to prepare. But with blinding conditions that even brought ice, back-to-back -back blizzards were intense. And they were just wet and cold and couldn't get dry. And the cows were all confused about who was the mom to watch calf. And it was just kind of pandemonium. And the Veters only had about 20 minutes from the time a calf was born to save it. Chad and Maya and my brother, we had two tractors out there and we had multiple cattle in the calves of the tractor uh, and trying to get them warm to get them back. Gene's brother came back from Texas just to help. And we were out in the tractors 
looking for calves. I think we picked up four or five of them, and then a couple of them we were able to get back with their moms. While some did not survive. We're still gonna be calculating that, but it was a handful and more than we want to, but gosh, we could have lost more. I get a lump in my throat t telling you about it. These cows that you raise that you work all summer and you know, you kind of get a bond with them and, you, and then you see them go through all that and all that year, it, it just dies there in a snowbank in 15 minutes. This ranch lost around 10 calves so far, but it's the lives they saved worth celebrating. And we had every family member in the in our entryway with a heated floor and we were scrubbing those calves down, getting them dried off and getting them fed and trying to perk them up. Jesse's two girls, along with her sister and her two kids, doing everything they could to save precious life on the ranch. The girls named her Strawberry, and now she's in the barn doing really well. So you feel like victorious in all of the those little victories that you, you get in that process of it being kind of desperate. Ranchers all across North Dakota lost calves in the storms, but there are many more still alive. And that's because the sacrifices that the beaters and other ranchers made. You never know if you're doing the exact right thing. You know, it's just kind of you're making decisions based on what you have. Signs of life. Born the day before the last storm, so it weathered the storm as a brand new baby. In more than one way. You have to just be in the moment, do what you can, and be able to look past it into a more positive situation and, and know that it's coming and believe that it's coming as better days are exactly what's ahead we were in such incredible drought see this area had faced a harsh drought for two consecutive years we were getting our business taken from us with the drought and i would say we're talking about this blizzard but i felt worse about the drought than i do about this blizzard honestly i do it, it was that was a hopeless feeling. While the blizzard robbed them of some new life, it also brought blessings in the form of moisture. It means not having to sell the cattle for us. Saving their herd, some of which they were already forced to sell. If we wouldn't have had rain to grow the grass that didn't grow back in the fall, um, we had not much left over, the stock dams will be full, we'll be able to keep our herd, that's huge. Relief is just one of many emotions running rampant as the weeks of brutal weather have made ranchers here tired, both physically and mentally. I worked hard enough that I, my body feels like a 90-year-old. <laughs> I mean, I, but we have, never once do I complain because my dad worked way harder and my grandpa worked way harder. But for ranchers, weathering the extremes is simply what you do. We had a lot to be grateful for in this situation. We have family around us, we have a lot of help, we had the right equipment, we had the moisture. For me, grit is just being able to see past it, you know, see past the hard time and into the next step. And the next step is gonna be better, we're gonna do this, we're gonna have a plan. But it takes guts with a fair amount of grit and grace. Well, Jesse is also a musician and a writer who's made it her mission to share ranchers' stories and give others a peek into life on the ranch. You can see her journey called Meanwhile Back at the Ranch on her Instagram account, Jessie Veter. And to see more of these touching grit with grace stories we've been sharing over the past year, just use that QR code on your screen and that'll take you straight to the playlist that's on YouTube. Well, we're diving back into our marketing discussion with Jim Wiesmeyer and Dan Bossy. That's next, right after the break. Welcome back. Well. 
Jim Wiesmeyer joining us now. Jim, we heard that the White House last week encouraging Congress to pass a massive food aid bill. But in that would be some incentive for U.S. farmers to double crop, potentially double cropping with, with wheat and encouraging more grain production here. I know you talked to a lot of folks. At the end of the day, would a move like that really incentivize that much more production here? It would not. It was a, an odd proposal that uh, more than likely came outside of the U.S. Department of Agriculture. I cannot imagine ag economists at USDA proposing what they did, which was basically a dramatic increase in loan rates that have to be repaid, basically. So that doesn't do anything. And on the double cropping, uh, they, you, they're really targeting 2023. When you talk to White House people, they're more than worried about 2023, getting the plantings there. But on double cropping, they didn't even include sorghum or milo and that's a double crop too so you know bottom line time that does nothing to uh, incite uh, because why would you take even out an 868 soybean loan when price on 16 dollars or or above i mean it just it, it just doesn't pass the laugh test yeah well there's a lot that can happen between now and 2023 and dan we saw some moisture recently come into parts of the plains kansas getting some rain finally seeing that moisture that's really a mixed bag for areas of North Dakota. So that moisture, a blessing, but also a hindrance in some areas when it comes to planting. Do you think that already Mother Nature is creating some major hurdles when it comes to crop production? Or are you not going that to that extent just yet? We would like her to be kinder than she has looking at Mother's Day here because uh, uh, for the, our friends in the Red River Valley, that flooding up there is not what they really needed. And more and more, if we get beyond May 20th, farmers there will be looking at prevent plant. And so with high input costs and a high revenue bar, that looks to be a, a viable program economically for those farmers. And that's not what we need. We need to feed the world. And that program would not allow that to happen. In the Southern Plains, the rains came probably too late to have a meaningful impact. It may stabilize yields, but it's surely not gonna be adding a lot of bushels in Texas, Oklahoma, and Kansas. Well, considering these commodity prices, Dan, at this point, are we hurting demand? Are we seeing demand destruction take place? Well, you know, that's the really interesting thing, Tyne, that I've seen. I've now been doing this almost as long as Jim, 42 years. But as you look at it, my, my crush facilities and soybeans are now making about $2.70 in the cash market. Ethanol is about 85 cents profitability. So even though I've got $8 corn, $17 soybeans, the, 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 there's no indication that margins are slipping. I need to get margins where that are compressed and negative, not where they're looking at these big positive numbers, so that ethanol facilities or crushers sell back supply within the market. Not happening. And so the job of a soybean crusher and ethanol plant is to keep bidding bushels, keep those plants running. And that's what we'll see heading the end of the year, unless there's a real change in margin in, uh, from on both, both sides. You know, some interesting talk this week, Jim, when it comes to China and seeing U.S. Trade Ambassador Catherine Tai talk about the possibility of, you know, will we see some of those tariffs removed? But at the same time, no matter if we see those tariffs removed or not, there are some, some real shipping concerns when it comes to China, all due to those COVID lockdowns. Do you see this working itself out in the, in the near term? Not in the near term. Uh, in fact, it'll extend some of the logistics problems, and I think Dan would back me up here, uh, you know, well into next year. You don't shut down one of the biggest world sports, you know, ports in Shanghai and, and elsewhere without having an impact, and they, they can't find truckers now, et cetera. It may sound familiar to the U.S. side. So uh, the, the logistics problems are going to continue longer and with a major force, you, you know, being China, as you said. 
Yeah, and when we come to, to some of those roadblocks that we've seen with shipping to China, is it having any impact, Dan, on the meat side? Well, definitely. If you look at U.S. pork exports, they are down to China about 68%. And so China's abundance of pork domestically and now all these shipping problems have got people backing away and rearing away from importing pork and probably other meats. Beef is still hanging in there for the moment. But I do worry most on the meat side. But even then, when you look at soybeans or corn, there is going to be a drag on demand. But when you step back and look at unshipped and sold bushels, both in old and new crop position, they are record large. So I'm really upbeat for soybeans in particular, the size of the export program that will be happening from late summer, probably into the beginning of 2023. All right, Dan, Jim, thank you so much for joining us this weekend. Let's take a quick break and then we'll have a lot more right here on U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Well, it's a popular saying you've more than likely used several times in your lifetime, and it's one that got its start in a small Missouri town. We're traveling the countryside with Andrew McRae to the home of sliced bread. A quagmire, we are on fire here. We are gonna be the best thing since sliced bread. That's the best thing since sliced bread. He thought it was the greatest thing since sliced bread. We've all heard the phrase, but where did it begin? It was an inventor named Otto Rowetter who knew he could improve on the whole loaf of bread. And he'd spent a number of years, I'd say eight or 10 years, putting together, raising money, building a prototype of his idea, a factory and all that, and it burned to the ground. And he lost it all. And if seeing his work lost in a fire wasn't enough, he soon received more bad news. His doctor told him he had a lung disease and would die within about a year. But Rowetter didn't give up on his dream. Ignoring the advice of his doctor, he got back to work on the sliced bread machine. But he needed someone to partner with him, someone willing to try out the new contraption. He found that man in Chillicothe baker, Frank Bench. Our baker wasn't doing that well, and so he said, I'll take a chance. Mr. Bench and Mr. Rowetter, the baker and the inventor, were ready to bring the world something commonplace today. July 7, 1928, we were the first bakery in the world to offer sliced bread to the public. Sliced bread was born. The inventor, Rowetter, didn't become rich, though, from his invention, but sales of sliced bread took off. That turned out to be not so good a time for economics. In 1929, we had the crash, and Mr. Rowetter actually had to sell his operation to what turned out to be Wonder Bread. Soon, sliced bread became the standard that all families desired. It's a great story because everyone knows the saying, the greatest thing since sliced bread. Nobody says that's the greatest thing since the iPhone or anything else. It's not a new thing, sliced bread. It's been around. But when did that phrase, the greatest thing since sliced bread, begin? No one knows for sure, but some point to the sacrifices made during World War II. When they shut down bread bakeries that were slicing bread, housewives were so outraged that they rescinded that about 60 days later. And we think that's maybe when the, the saying, the greatest thing since sliced bread, I don't know that we really know exactly, you know, who the first person to say that was. Today, you can come to the bakery building where it all began and see one of the earliest machines. Plus, this town hosts many events each year to coincide with its proclamation as the home of sliced bread. So the next time you run into something that is wonderful and innovative and are tempted to say it's the greatest thing since sliced bread, well, you know it all started right here. Traveling the countryside in Chillicothe, Missouri, I'm Andrew McCray. Thank you, Andrew. And if you want to travel more of the countryside with Andrew McRae, you can do that with that QR code that will take you to our YouTube page. Well, coming up, there were a lot of questions that viewers submitted, but specifically quite a few surrounding land. John Phipps joins us for customer support next. What exactly is farmland? 
Your next piece of equipment is on MachineryPete.com. Search equipment from dealerships across the country to find what you're looking for. Only on MachineryPete.com. Well, several weeks ago when John Phipps did a call out for a question in return for a mug, he had hundreds of responses and several centered around farmland. He shares one of those viewer questions with us and customer support this week. Paul Butler raises a good question about farmland accounting from one of a previous commentary. The only question I have is the 900 million acres of farmland. I come up with about 180 million acres of corn and beans, 45 million acres of wheat rounded up, 11 million acres of cotton and 3 million rice. A quick Google search showed me about 3 million in vegetables, 50 million acres of hay. That's a total of 292 million. What am I missing? What are the other 608 million acres growing? This is an important point, I think, and it's all about the definition of farmland. Here's how NAS, who supplies the numbers, defines it. Land and farm consists of agricultural land used for crops, pasture, or grazing. Also included is woodland and wasteland not actually under cultivation or used for pasture or grazing, provided it was part of the farm operator's total operation. Land in farms includes acres in CRP, WRP, and other government conservation programs. Now, like you, I automatically think of row crops because that's what our farm looks like. Now, here is how, uh, how farmland is broken down by use. Note the largest component is pasture land. Remember, too, that the criteria for a farm is just over $1,000 gross sales, a pretty low hurdle. Frankly, I'm not clear what unharvested cropland is, but these are the numbers used by the American Farmland Trust. They monitor farmland acres lost to development. This is the basis of my calculation that the loss was less than 0.2% per year. Even if we assume it was all harvested cropland, that percentage would just triple to 0.6% per year, still less alarming than those 20-year total used in headlines. There's no reason to believe and several to doubt that the, the idea that land lost to development is solely cropland. For one thing, building houses on bare fields doesn't have the sales appeal of a development fit into a wooded pasture, for example. Plus, the woods would be way cheaper to buy. Regardless, to compare the numbers, it is necessary to use the same numbers, and those numbers do not seem alarming to me. Farmland resembles the dairy paradox. Many fewer cows each year producing far more milk. Similarly, corn yields have increased on average about 2% per year, per year for decades. Finally, if there were truly sound reasons to worry about having enough farmland to feed America, we could free up tens of millions of acres simply by ending the ethanol mandate. Thanks, John. Well, this Mother's Day weekend, even if you no longer live on your home farm, it's the idea of home that can spark fond memories, often because of strong farm moms who created a setting that's welcoming and warm. We'll travel to one of those places next. Well, as we showed you in Gret with Grace, ranching is not always glamorous like you see in popular shows like Yellowstone. In fact, a lot of times it requires a heavy dose of grit and grace. But Jesse Veter Schofield in North Dakota is doing everything that she can to create memories as well as lessons on the ranch that will last a lifetime. This is where I was raised. This, we're in you know, a fourth generation raising the fifth generation. This land 
uh, is here because this opportunity is here because of the generations that came before us that sacrifice um, the immigrants that came before us that homesteaded this place and really had a vision for it and for some reason that gets passed down it gets passed down I feel that generational pull to be here to continue the legacy um, because it means something it's important the work that we're doing is you know we have the little herd of cattle that we have but it's feeding somebody it, it and it has a purpose and and we're teaching our children that purpose and I think um, it's just the it's a life that you if you're born into it some people it sticks in their guts if but you don't have to be born into it to want to do it to love it to take care um, you do it because it's what you do it's what you want to do amen perfect way to end the show this Mother's Day weekend and happy Mother's Day to all of you out there. Thank you so much for watching and be sure to tune in next weekend as we work to build on our tradition. Have a great weekend everyone. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.